Hi guys, Rob here, podcast editor for EveryMind. Welcome to an interview with Steve Norton, Head of Talent Acquisition at Think Money. Steve's experience in HR spans 20 countries and four continents, so if anyone is going to have a worldly view of mental health in the workplace, it's Steve. If you like this podcast, don't forget to share and leave us a review on iTunes so we can keep bringing you great podcasts like these. Enjoy the show. So Steve, welcome to the EveryMind podcast. How are you? Yeah, I'm really good, thanks. Yeah, um, yeah, life, life is okay at the moment, you know. It could be a lot worse, let's put it that way. It's very hot though, right? But we all, com- we all complain about the heat and we always ask for the sun, so. Luckily, I've got air conditioning, so I'm, I'm, I'm in the oh, office. Oh, nice. Today, so I'm, I'm, do- I'm doing fine, but yesterday working from home, sweltering, yeah, absolutely. Very unusual for Manchester in my experience, as I'm new yeah. up here. Uh, yeah. yeah, of course. Yeah, we, we just literally said before I hit record that I've got a fan to the left of me and if it's <laughs> making a noise, I don't care because it's too hot to turn it off. Um, right, yeah. Be comfortable, that's the key thing. Exactly. So Steve, thank you for taking the time out. So um, let's start by talking a little bit about your current role within Think Money. Yeah, so I'm head of talent acquisition at Think Money. We're a fintech digital bank based in Manchester. Um, Started 19 years ago as a call center-led bank. Uh, and then as technology's evolved, we've you know, turned into a fintech in the last few years. So um, really most of what we do now is digital. We've still got a call center. Um, but most of what you do in terms of transacting with us now would be through an app or through a web browser. So yeah, we just, we just use the technology really. So uh, I work for the head of HR. Um, and certainly, you know, if it's kind of people issues, uh, any kind of people issues, then we would tend to deal with those as a, as a kind of team. We've got to have discrete responsibilities, but we often collaborate on anything people-related. Nice. And, 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 and personally for you, you know, what was your journey as a, as a HR professional? Yeah, so I, I started out in executive search, um, did projects all over the world um, for major global clients. Um, had my own business for quite a few years, kind of sold that around 2000. Um, and definitely had a lot of mental health issues just, just after that, in fact. So um, I kind of worked as a freelancer, working from home for myself, which was probably a good thing. Um, definitely struggled a lot with mental health issues. Um, things that really caught me by surprise as well, you know, up until that point. Um, I'd been sort of up to my mid-30s. I'd been a, a successful person running my own business with my business partner, traveling over the world, doing a job I absolutely loved. Um, and uh, yeah, when I, when I sold that business on, um, uh, started working for myself for a little bit. I just had my second child born. It really caught me out and caught me by surprise. So mm. kept working for myself for a bit, did a bit of interim stuff, uh, kind of going as interim sales director for different agencies. And I got approached for a, an in-house head of talent acquisition role in the Middle East in Bahrain. Um, I just thought, yeah, that sounds really interesting, actually. I quite like that. So that was 2007. And generally speaking, for the last 13 years, that's what I've done. Head of recruitment, head of talent acquisition, 13 years as an interim, but wanted to transition into a permanent role. Ironically enough, persuading people that you want to be permanent after over a decade of contracting was really, really difficult with my fellow uh, recruitment and talent acquisition professionals who just didn't seem to understand that you want different things at different phases of life. You know, for me, I'd done contracting for 10 years. It was great. I just over 10 years. It was great but I wanted something permanent. Uh, I really wanted to be somewhere for a period of time and make a kind of long-term difference around that. So really, we're relocating to Manchester from the south with my, my family and I. So I was delighted really to get this opportunity to come in on a permanent basis, 
work with a fantastic head of HR, fantastic board that really care about people here um, and really drive that people agenda forward, you know. So, yeah, it's been a great move and great first eight months here, you know, not, notwithstanding coronavirus and the challenges we've had around that. Amazing. And, you know, there's a couple of things there that I want to sort of touch on, if you don't mind. I think the first one is that you wanted to start this permanent role to really drive change within the organization, right? And again, I, I believe there's short-term mindset still around mental health in general. You know, where's the tick box? Where's the, you know, where's the band-aid that we can put on this, this problem? So um, in terms of starting out and, and looking at this as a long-term culture change, what are you putting in place for Think Money or, or what advice can you give to people in terms of that overall picture that's, you know, let's say the next 10 years, how do we really change the face of mental health within an organisation? I don't think I am driving change because I think that's always been here. You know, it's a company, um, uh, you know, that actually, you know, I'm, I don't need to change that. That's already here. It's hardwired into the board. It's hardwired into my head of HR. So I'm not having to come in and persuade them that, you know, doing more for people, uh, is something that's a good idea. They, they already think that anyway. And that, that's the great thing about coming into an environment where um, you've got a board of directors and a head of HR who already think like that. And all they want to do is just do it better, you know. So, um, you know, I can just contrib contribute and be a part of that, really. I think from the mental health side of things, there's it's always a challenge, you know. So for me, I, you know, I, I hid my mental health issues for a long time. You know, it took me a, a while to recover from those. And I was lucky that I was working for myself because I could just, just do enough to, you know, keep the family fed and pay the bills. Um, but really, you know, I was, I was in an incredibly bad place. You know, I, I, I really was um, not very good for a very long time. It was, it was two years to recover from that, you know. And um, I did that with the support of a phenomenal GP, great doctor who went really above and beyond what what most most gps i think would really do um and gave me coping mechanisms and you know wait challenge my ways of thinking um and with depression it's it, there's no one answer if there was we wouldn't have this you know um epidemic of, of kind of issues with mental illness especially in the younger generation you know my, my son's generation so if there was a simple answer everybody would have found it by now and everybody would be doing it there isn't a simple answer i don't know why i got depression i don't know why i fell as low as i did i don't know whether i came really really close to doing you know something really really silly because I, I did i came really really close to uh, to making a really really bad decision um and and you know even if you ask me how i got past that and through it i can give you some ideas but i don't really know either you know it's not a straight path that you walk down when you're trying to recover from that and get back to being a really functional human being and i think all of us have struggled at some point to be honest and candid about what we've gone through uh, honest and candid with people that we work with, with employers, if we're going for interviews, uh, even with friends as well. You know, there are, if, if some friends of mine, you know, watch this, watch this back, they would be quite shocked, I think, to realise I, I kind of got to where I got to. Um, not because I've kept it from them. They certainly knew I was struggling at that time. You know, it was a two-year period. It's a long time. It's difficult to just wake up and smile and say everything's okay because your friends know you. They know something's off if I could use that simple word, you know, um, but they don't, they don't really know the depth and you don't always want to tell them the depth. So I think it's just one of those things that I, I, I do see a change now. I do see people being more open about it. 
um, companies understanding it a lot better. I think there's a long way to go. I don't think we're where we still where we want to be. Uh, I wonder whether we ever will be on some on some yeah. level as well. But people can be a lot more candid, a lot more open. Um, if you go to your manager and say, "Look, I'm really struggling at the moment. I'm not feeling great." Um, whether it's a duvet day or, or more long-term, medium-term issue that's going to require, you know, um, some kind of long-term assistance or help, you know, uh, I think people are just more prepared to have those conversations. That's not everybody, but it's a lot more people than I think 10 years ago, for instance. So I think we're on a journey, obviously. It's a lot better than it was. It's just a journey we're, we're nowhere near where we want to be, and we just have to continually work at it. If you, if you stop trying to be better at those things, you won't get better. So it just requires effort and a real commitment. If you commit to improving something, hopefully you'll get to a better place. Yeah, and I guess it's that's relative to our own mental health, right? Which you kind of explained as well that in a way, you know, we've, we've almost been conditioned to react when something's bad, you know, ignore mental health, ignore that you've got, you know, ignore mental illness and, and only do something when it gets really, really deep and, and yeah. in despair. And, and I think like your, your story kind of, you know, almost is that as well you know it was almost like this is never going to happen to me and i share my own personal experience which is similar with my dad you know mm. for me mental illness was, was never going to impact us it was, it was yeah. just it just well, did never cross my mind but then when yeah. it does you have to react um and you know organizations you know all not all organizations but a lot of organizations have taken that very reactive model for for a long time as well um and and again you know when it comes to to driving that change like you said and you you mentioned that you haven't had to come in and and force that change upon because you've got that buy-in already if if a hr professional or someone is listening to this and, and they're struggling to get that what advice would you give to them well i think for an employee's point of view you know if we're hr professionals working for an organization i think you have to make some decisions about whether you are happy with the company that you're working and I'm not saying that from a point of your company is good or bad or right or wrong in the things it does. But we've all got our own set of values. We've all got our own life experiences. We've all got things that, you know, we prioritize, you know. Um, and so if you're, if you're in an environment where you want to do good things for your people, you want to be really supportive of them, you know. Um, you know, you want to do culturally more than just have an employee assistance program with a hotline number, which is great. Don't get me wrong. You, you know, those, those things are a good place to start. If, if it just doesn't align enough with the culture and, and the attitudes that you've got, I think you have to make a decision to step away from that. You know, I've been offered permanent roles in several of the companies that I've contracted in. And I've been happy to do the contracts and I think uh, done some, hopefully done some good work. I've been invited back to a lot of those companies and I like them, but it just wasn't quite right from a people perspective um, in, in terms of some ways in which I'm going to say the senior management teams um, did treat their people or react to, you know, when they struggle with the problems. I worked at a company, um, one company twice. I'm not, I'm not going to say anything about who they are. Uh, I'm not going to give any clues to it, but, I went back a few years after I'd first worked there, uh, really to sort out talent acquisition, which is what I'd been asked to sort out the first time as well. And a few years on, it unfortunately got to a bad place again. And I had an issue of bullying in the workplace. And I'd, I'd hired this person. Um, he was really high performing, really well respected by his peers, by his managers. Um, you know, it wasn't a huge company, a few hundred people. So everybody kind of knew everybody you know, fairly well. Um, he had this bullying issue and he, he came to me because 
I had that relationship with him bringing him into the business. I kept in contact with him. You know, I always do with people. I hire how things working out. Is the job going as well as you hoped it was? Um, did you think, you know, did, did we, did we, were we honest when we talked to you about what the demands were of the role and the kind of culture that we had here? And when he came to me, he was, he was crying. He was crying in the middle of an open plan office in front of 100 people. So first thing I did was take him away to a private office straight away and ask what the issues were. Um, and this wasn't, this wasn't somebody in, in their early 20s. This was somebody in their mid or late 30s, you know, an experienced person. And I could just see the level of distress, but I didn't know what it was. So when he started explaining what was happening in the workplace with his manager, obviously I was not, not very happy about that. And I rang my senior HR business partner straight away to explain the problem that we had. And this company had implemented, uh, and I hadn't known about this, they'd implemented a, a ticketing system, just like a help desk, you know, oh, I can't turn my PC on or, or Outlook isn't working properly. They had, a, they had a, a, a same system, a ticketing system for, for HR. So this person said, yeah, if you raise a ticket, I'll come back to you. And I said, I'm sitting in a closed room with a, a professional who is experiencing bullying in the workplace, and I expect you to deal with this issue on the phone now, with me right now. We weren't on, we weren't on the video conference, we were just on a phone, but on a speaker phone, so he could hear everything as well that was being discussed. And she said to me, once you raise the ticket, I'll have any conversation that you want. And for me, once, you, once you've got to that point, when you've got a, a human being in genuine emotional distress, is being bullied in, or making an accusation of bullying in the workplace. Obviously, I couldn't verify that at that time. Mm. You know, once you're talking about raising a ticket on the ticketing system, you've lost the plot. Yeah. I mean, that, that HR function has lost the plot completely. You know, and I just, you know, question, you know, human resources, where's the humanity in that, you know? And that caused me a real issue. Yeah, so yeah. I had a contract that lasted for another five months, and I put my notice in a week later. So you're always told, don't resign on principle. Actually, that's the best reason to resign. Resign because your principles, your ethics, your values are not being represented by that company. And as the head of TA, I'm bringing people into that company and I'm saying this is a really good place to work. And I had real issues about being that ambassador and that, that front door that welcomes people into a company that's going to treat people like that on that issue. So... Yeah. Yeah, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to do. You know, it's a few years ago now, but it's less than 10 years ago. Um, so that's still not going to signpost anybody to which company it is. But for me, you just lost the plot at that point, you know, and I lost total respect yeah. for that individual because we can, we can do the ticket in half an hour when you go back to his desk. But let's just try and help that guy out right here, right now, while he's got, we've got something that's really a real problem. So yeah. companies are not, not quite where they should be sometimes, you know, and um, it's disappointing. But I think, you know, if you're in a company that shares your values, whatever those are, um, you know, then hopefully you're in a good place to do that. And all you can really do is see whether they've got an appetite for helping people, uh, for, you know, and that, and that comes on a number of levels. So for me, I love doing internal talent management, you know, pushing people's careers forward, uh, helping to shape that for them, making them aware of things maybe they didn't even know about. Um, so that's all part of it. You know, it, it's all about looking after that individual. You hire them, you develop them, you retain them. And of course, while they're there working with you, you look after them in every sense of the word, not just their L&D and their professional training, but their mental health and their well-being as well. And if there are any issues around there, you've got to wrap your arms around that person and do everything you can to help them, you know. So if it doesn't work, if it's not working for you, step away, find another opportunity. 
Yeah, I like that. And again, it's because, you know, so many people will complain and say, you know, I'm not getting that senior buy-in or I've tried this, I've tried that, I've tried this. And, you know, sometimes it's good to try and knock down those walls and, and try and make that change. But if you're not getting anything back, it's like you said, maybe it's time for that change and join an organization that, that you know, uh, encourage that. And, and I really like that I was about to say that as well, you know, that's taking the human out of human resources, right? And um, a good friend of mine, um, Johnny Benjamin, he shared a story once, which really resonated me, with me as well, how when he was, you know, going through his, his problems and, and his struggles and in a, in a sort of psychiatric ward, he said he saw clinical psychologists after clinical psychologists. And some of these had, you know, so many letters after their name that, you know, so much experience. And, and he sat there and all they did is they greeted him like this, you know, clipboard here. Hi, Johnny, you know, um, you know, pen in their hand. And, and he was like, I'm, I'm never going to, you know, he just felt like he would never talk to this person because it was so clinical. There was no human part of it. And he said the the person that made him talk for the first time and to start sharing was she walked in the room, she put the clipboard on the table, she sat forward and she said, Johnny, so tell me, you know, how are you feeling? And, and it was like, it's the human had been sort of taken away from that. So when we talk about vulnerability as well, um, you know, in terms of your line of work, I'm guessing as well, are we embracing vulnerability a bit more now in comparison to, to maybe before, because I'm, I'm sure in a lot of cases, people seem being vulnerable as them being not professional. Are, are we embracing it more, would you say? Well, I, don't, I don't think it's uh, not professional. I think it's just you don't want to be seen as weak. So, you know, if you think about an interview, it's a sales environment. Hi, you know, you, you're interviewing me for a job, so I'm here to sell myself. I'm here to say I'm the best candidate for the job. I've got all these skills and abilities and attitudes that say I'm a never-say-die kind of person, you know, uh, going to get the job done at all costs and that sort of thing. And if you say... I'm not very good at that or I, I you know I, I get affected by this kind of interaction with people then you know what you're doing is raising question marks in the interviewers minds as to whether you're going to be resilient when times are tough and and all you know just a number of things that spin off from that and I think that's just a natural human reaction to being interviewed you know as someone who's been interviewing people for 30 years I totally get why you why you would do that um mm -hmm. But I think once I think so I think it's two things. It's there's vulnerability when you're being interviewed, which you're not you're probably not going to really bring out very much. And then there's the vulnerability when you've been employed and you're in the job. And and I think that comes down to the quality of the manager that you work for. You know, everybody knows the old sayings that you leave managers and not companies and that kind of thing. But I think that's absolutely true. You know, if your manager is personally invested um, in you as an individual and, you know, all the good stuff around your career, but also all the good stuff around your mental health and well-being, you know, you, you leave that manager with a really heavy heart, don't you? Because, you, you know, if you've certainly if you've been working for a while, you know that that's not always what you're going to get every time, you know, and, and, you know, don't forget that as much as you're selling yourself in an interview, the company's selling themselves too, you know, no manager says, if you join, you know, uh, I don't, I don't care if you work out or not, you know, it's a rotating door and I'll, I'll churn and burn you. No one, no one ever says that when they're interviewing a, a candidate, you know, it's, um, it's a great place to work. It's exciting place. We've got good projects, all that kind of stuff as well, you know? So I think that vulnerability thing is, You've got to, to have vulnerability, to be comfortable with vulnerability, you've got to trust. That's, trust is the number one thing. I think trust is the number one thing anyway when you work for someone because if you trust them, you know, you know that they've got your interests at heart, your best interests at heart with whatever aspect of, of life that affects you in the workplace um, is relevant. So that, that building that trust is really important. And for me personally, as a manager, I think you have to give a little bit of yourself. You know, So I've been in a situation where... 
you know, somebody who's worked for me, you know, is suffer, also suffering from depression and anxiety. Uh, and I said, you know, I wish I could explain how I feel. And, and I said to that person, I, I know how you feel because I, I've felt exactly the same thing, you know. And also, you know, I've got to a much lower point than you have. So I need to do whatever I can do for you, hopefully, because it is hopeful. It's not, there's no guaranteed outcomes here. Hopefully to make sure you don't sink as low as I ended up. So I think by giving a little bit of yourself and saying, you don't have to explain it to me. I've, I've lived it. I've, you know, I've been there. I've walked in your shoes. I've done it. I know how bad you feel. I know why you're struggling. I know some of the crazy things that your head is doing, your brain is doing to you at the moment. You know, some of the illogical thoughts that are going through your head, some of the irrational fears that you've got. I've had them all and I've got a lot worse. And this person said to me, I don't think you're as low as, as low as I am. And I said, well, if you're as low as I was, I'm going to have to get in my car. I'm going to have to drive to your flat because you are very close to doing something incredibly stupid that you can't come back from. So that's how low I got. I don't think you're at that point, but if you are, tell me, because I'm literally going to walk to the car now and drive straight to your house and stop you doing something incredibly stupid. So I think I have, I have been where you are, uh, and I think I probably have been worse, but I don't know. All I can tell you is I, I've, I've had a version of what you've got. I do know probably how you feel, and I'm just here to help you and try and get you back to a better place because the other thing you need is you need hope. You know, when you're not yeah. great, you know, when life isn't feeling good, when you've got you know, anything on that spectrum of depression or anxiety or you know, mental health issues, then what you need is hope that you can get back to a better place. And certainly for me, for a long time in that two years, I did not have hope. I did not feel I could get better because firstly, I didn't understand how I got there. You know, and come along, you know, I kind of talk it as a black cloud. You know, it's always there. I just hope it doesn't rain. Um, you know, but it, it's kind of always there in the sky. It never goes away 100%. In reality, you know, 95% of the time, I'm absolutely fine. I can just have a bad day occasionally and um, be a bit morose in the evening. But at that time, in that two-year period, you know, it was just non-stop. And what I didn't have was any way out of that. And so I think, you know, that's what you've got to try and give is hope that you can get better. So, you know, if one person, you know, this is the first year I've really ever talked about my mental health issues. A friend of mine who's a bit of a mentor has been encouraging me for years to talk about it if I felt comfortable. And that's the key thing. I didn't really feel comfortable. But I think coronavirus and, you know, the mental issues and stress and all those things that come out of that, I think have encouraged me to be a little bit more open and candid about those things. Um, and, you know, make, you know I, I certainly find by hearing other people's experiences that helps me. Um, say, oh, oh you, you were in this place. Um, but you did recover and you got to that place. So there is a way, through, there's a path through that. And that's what I've got to, you know, I, you know, in 2003 at my lowest, you know, I had two lovely children, five and three, lovely wife who just celebrated our silver wedding anniversary this year. None of those things made any difference. None of those things almost, you know, stopped me from almost doing an incredibly silly thing. Um, so, you know, but here I am, you know, over 20 years later, hopefully reasonably successful in my job with a good career behind me. I'm 54, so no spring chicken. Um, you know, hopefully I've been a good father to my sons who are kind of 22 and 20, 25 years married to my wife. Hopefully I've done the odd good thing, you know, I get through the odd performance review every year with her. Um, 
you know, that's the point. You know, you can you can be a productive person in the workplace. You can be a hopefully a good father, a good husband, you know, a good contributor in life. And, uh, you know, hopefully if you, you can see enough of us standing up and saying, you, you, there is hope, you can get better. I know it won't work for everybody, but if you can just get to the odd person and give them a little bit of hope, something to cling on to, then that's why I'm happy to talk about these things. Yeah, I love that. And thank you so much for sharing. And, and like you say, I'm a firm believer in that as well. People hear your story and then they feel like they can maybe relate and then they feel safer to open up. And, and really it's that domino effect, right? You know, someone hears yep. you, they feel like they can talk, they then share, they then help someone else. And it's just a consistent domino effect that, you know, with time will hopefully start to, to help more people open up as well. Um, but yeah, thank you so much for sharing as well. And there's a couple of things that really resonated with me around hope, you know, holding on to that hope and, and we all have the power to give someone that hope as well, you know, whether it's in the workplace or not. Um, you mentioned coronavirus. Um, I've got one question around that and then we're going to do a fire round, just a couple of quick questions um, before we wrap up. But COVID-19, how do you think it has changed people's outlook on, on mental health, emotional well-being? You don't think that people who are furloughed or people who are made redundant or people who are worried about being made redundant, um, you know, are not suffering at this time. You know, the reality is um, everybody's different. Some people are more resilient than others. But actually, you know, we've been doing this since March. It doesn't really matter how resilient you are. Most people are feeling something, you know, that's not great at this moment in time. So you've really got to be living somewhere really weird if you don't appreciate that. So I think it's just improved people's appreciation and understanding that people are sometimes suffering, you know, and you've got to step in, get personally involved, talk to people if they're furloughed, talk to people who are still in, still work, still at work um, because they're still worried about being furloughed or, or they were a couple of months ago, or they're still worried about redundancy and losing their job now. So I think it's just, you know, good companies like ours, you know, set expectations that all managers will talk to their staff, talk to anybody that's furloughed, keep the lines of communication open. Our MD sends out monthly mailers, you know, that go out on email, but also go out on text message. So if you're furloughed and you can't access your, your email, don't worry, you'll get it on a text message, you know. So mm-hmm. I think we've really communicated incredibly well. Uh, with everybody, you know, to kind of keep them on board to let them know that job retention scheme is exactly that. Furlough is there to try and keep their job. Um, So I think, yeah, COVID-19 has just increased awareness around it and probably made some people who maybe weren't so great at understanding that their people just have to do a little bit more and be a little bit better. And I think once you've done that, once your mind's been open, it's very difficult to contract back to what you were before. That's not a criticism of people either, just that some people are a little bit better, a bit more emotionally intelligent uh, than others. But I think it's made some of those people better than what they were before in terms of their people management skills. And that's that's one of the few good things to come out of COVID-19 if that's a long-lasting effect. Yeah, I agree. And it's that compassion, isn't it? You know, in a way, understanding a little bit more because now you know, as you said, we've had to bring it to the forefront. And, and I definitely think there's been a a real, especially within the corporate environment, and obviously the work that we're doing and the clients that we're now working with, there's definitely been a bit of a shift in hold on, we need to do something about this. Um, I always used to talk about the ROI of, of mental health. And everyone was looking for that ROI of mental health, whereas a lot of clients that we now work with say we're doing it because we have to do it right rather than trying to track the monetary value um, behind it. So Mm -hmm. Really appreciate everything um, 
and I've got four questions, two are really kind of quick and two are a little bit deeper and, and, and might make you think. Um, I should have prepped okay. you with these actually, Steve. Um, the first one, I don't know if you read or whether you read or, or listen to audio books or whatever, but what's the favorite book that you've read recently? Oh, I just finished uh, uh, Karen Slaughter's latest crime novel. I'm a really big into crime. My wife and I are really into that. So we've got a load of favorite writers like Michael Connolly, Karen Slaughter, um, and yeah, I just read her, just finished her latest book. I can't remember the name of it, ironically. I finished it two days ago. Um, but it's a 500-pager, and I think I whacked through it in about three days. So once I start nice. on the crime book, I finish it really, really quickly. Nice. Love it. Um, favorite gadget under £50 you've bought that's helped you recently? Ooh, I'm not really into gadgets. So that's a really good one. Uh, I'll tell you what I bought. I bought a new pair of running shoes. I'm not, I'm not the nice. slimmest, I'm not the slimmest as you can see. Um, and I got them in a sale. So that was great. They were 90 pound down to, I think about 45 pounds. So nice. it's not quite a gadget. I'm not really into gadgets, but the running shoes will hopefully get me running, get a bit of weight running off. Shoes yeah. All, got, to get, got to get the physical health right as well as the mental health. I think one leads into the other and I've lost exactly. that a little bit recently. Good stuff. Um, what would you say to someone struggling right now? I think that what, what, one of the things my GP helped me with understanding was that you need good people around you. I actually kind of did always know that. But when you're struggling, you lose perspective and your mind does crazy things with you. It really does. You, you stop processing things. You stop being logical if you're normally like that. So um, her recommendation was surround yourself with good people. Uh, I always believe that your best friend's not always the best person to help you. You need to find people who are just going to be good when you need them. You know, so for me, I, I, I always think of it as I've got a selection of people. If I ring them, they will pick that phone up. And if they can't talk to me at that precise moment when I ring them, they will literally call me back the second that they are free. Mm. Um, you know, now at the moment they do that just because... I'm calling them, they're a friend, they're a former colleague, whatever it is, you know, we've got a good relationship. But at that time in 2001 to 2003, with my friends who knew I was off, to use that phrase that I, that I used before, that they would just pick up the phone and, and know that they, I needed something. You know, I'm not, I don't think I'm a very demanding person, but when you do need something, you really, really need it. Uh, and so, you know, probably the person I would say was my best friend wasn't my most reliable friend. So that was not the person that I went to first when I needed help with an issue, you know, and help to try and recover from a really bad place that I was in. So find, find the good people around um, and just make sure they're there for you. And, and that just sounds so basic, but, you know, we've all got people that we like to think are going to be there for us, that we think are going to be reliable on the times that we need them. But sometimes they're just not. And so if they're not, you've got to really understand that, you know, you might, you might like them the most, but they're not going to be the best people to help you out with something. You've really got to find some go-to people um, and just know they're going to call you back as soon as you need them. Because sometimes you might be in such a bad place, it's not optional that you need someone. You really, really, really need them. And what you don't want to get to, what you want is them to help you before you get that low. Yeah, I love that. And I think this one, like, just to summarize it all, you know, I kind of want to rephrase this a little bit because I was going to ask you when you was in that really low period, that two year period, um, what advice would you give to yourself? But I want to ask you leading up to that period. So let's say, you know, a couple of years before that, mm. that dark period for you, if you could give some advice to the, the younger, the younger Steve, what advice would you give? You know, that, that's actually a really difficult one. I don't think I'm going to answer that very well for you enough. So I'm going to apologize for that because 
Um, you know, I was running an incredibly successful business. I was traveling the world. I was earning a lot of money. Everything, if you looked at my life, you know, had lovely wife, young children, uh, big house. I, I didn't chase the money. That was just a, a nice side effect of doing the work that I love. Um, but if you'd looked at my life, you'd have said my life was picture perfect, you know, Facebook perfect, you know, here's all the good stuff, here's all the great mm. pictures, uh, you know, here's the speedboat on the south coast and the nice house and, the, and the, you know, the really expensive Lotus sports car in the driveway and the other car next to it as well I use for my, my day use, you know. But actually that, you know, they, they weren't the important things, they were just nice side effects, as I said, of, of, of doing a good job, hopefully. But when it came and hit me, it hit me from nowhere. So when I, if, if, if I do feel like, you know, if I do feel bad, not quite like I did before, which is what I was going to say, but if I do feel bad, again, it just tends to strike me from nowhere. That's the randomness of this thing called depression for me. You know, I, if I could predict it, well, that's great. I could plan for it. I could do something about it. I, I can't plan for it. It just comes at the most random times. And the good news is now it, it lasts for almost no time because I've got the coping mechanisms. I'm open with my wife about it. She can actually spot it sometimes before I can. Mm. After 26 years of being together, you'd like to think she would. Um, but also, so do those closest friends. You know, I can li- they could literally ring me and you go, are you okay? And I say, yeah, I'm fine. And I go, what's wrong? literally within a split second they're saying what's wrong because they've got that time with me and because i only really build really close friendships i'm not i think i've got 33 friends on facebook so i'm not really interested in collecting quantity it's about quality for me Mm. um you know that they just kind of know so it's really because you can't plan for it uh you can't really predict what's going to happen when it hits you how hard it's going to hit you sometimes it just pulls me to the floor and smashes my knees into the ground and it's really painful most of the time luckily now it's just a little dig in the ribs and i've got the coping mechanisms the friends the good people i can call and actually i find that's what works for me i've got three or four friends that are in my top list that i just call them and i can just talk to them for three or four hours if i need to i don't normally but i might talk to them for an hour or so you know and just kind of work it through and work it out of me that's why i've been able to get to that point where i can work it out of me and i've got a couple who are just a bit brutal but i love them for it because they just kind of give me a a verbal slap around the face and just sort of give me some perspective that's healthy and if it's something i've worried about i'll over worry about it just because i'm losing that perspective a little bit i'm having that bad day you know and i'll ring i'll ring one of them in particular and she'll just say Okay, so I've just got to slap you around the face a bit, sort you out a bit. Yes, please, that'd be really handy. So how long have you got? And she'll say, as long as you need. Well, you know, that's just the perfect answer and the perfect friend. You know, as long as you need. Perfect. I love that. So it's, it's almost like that having, you know, equipping yourself with those, those tools and, and those people that you know can get you through those dark times. And, I, and I'm guessing as well, Steve, is it, that you embrace talking about it more now than maybe you did, you know, before as well. Yeah. Like I said, you know, my, you know, this person I worked with before years ago, who's, um, who's an HR professional as well, you know, and a bit of a mentor to me, you know, he's been talking to me probably for five or six years um, to say, you know, if, if you're comfortable talking about it, he's never put pressure on me ever to do something I don't want to do because you wouldn't do that with someone that you, you like and respect. And so, other people aren't comfortable talking about it i I understand that i really really do um but yeah i'm I'm at that comfortable place and i think it is coronavirus you know it's the fact that you know i think i posted something on linkedin months ago saying i think there's going to be a tsunami of mental health issues coming out the back of it 
I really, really do. You know, we haven't even got into, you know, people's financial difficulties and all that. Just, just dealing with, you know, the loss of your job or being furloughed and all those kind of things, you know, that's just enough stress in itself. And it's something you haven't had before. Um, you know, I do think it's easier for us when we're a bit older, you know, my kind of age, because I've worked through three recessions before. This is going to be the mother of all recessions. It's fourth time round. So anything that you've done before equips you a bit better to deal with it the next time round. You know, when you're as old and crusty as me and you're on your fourth one, well, I'm not saying it's easy because it's never easy and recessions are just horrible. The human impact on them is horrendous. Um, but it's a bit easier than maybe, you know, some of the people I know who are in their 20s. And this is the first time coronavirus is just worse than any other time as well. Although things like you know, job retention are, are, are really, really great. So I can't answer your question in terms of what I'd say to myself because I couldn't have planned for it. I like it. Though. I think you just have to have those tools. You know, you have to try and get yeah. those tools, those people, that infrastructure, that network. You just have to find those people wherever they are. And I was incredibly lucky that my GP wanted to spend as much. She spent far more time with me than any GP would normally do um, just because she really wanted to get me back to a good place. And I'll, I'll, I'll never forget that. Amazing. Steve, I really appreciate you taking the time and I've learned loads from it as well. And I think all of that, as you say, highlights hope, you know, all of those people that were there and now the coping strategies that you've got, you know, and you sharing your story, it all encourages hope. And I think that's definitely my biggest takeaway. So Steve, thank you so much for, for joining us and sharing your wisdom and being so um, vulnerable as well. And, and I'm, I'm sure this will help a lot of people. Really appreciate it. And uh, it's great to speak to you. Cool. Awesome. Thank you. Take care.